Broadcasting live from inside the power band, this is The Blah. In this episode, everybody dies. I'm your host, The Mulverine, along with the intrepid proto-molecule, Jarhigo. Yum sing. And the always exciting and lovely algorithm. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Series Station. Eros, Ganymede, the UN, Belters, the MCRN. That's right, folks. This week we took a deep dive into seasons one and two of the hit Amazon Prime series, The Expanse. And today we're going to be having a conversation about that. Let's kick it over to Algorithm. High level. I would be very, very curious to hear the two of your high levels before I go, just because you have not read the books. So I'm, I'm very curious what a first exposure is from, from a couple of viewers. Um, I will jump right in and go first and say that I kept seeing the banner ad for this on Prime, and it looked really interesting. I was more intrigued when one of our listeners suggested that we do this. Yeah, the listener's name was Mike. I don't want to say his full name just because, you know, I didn't ask permission first, but... That's all right. Mike asked, you're getting a ton of love today, man. We love you. Thanks for pushing us to do this one. And then I watched the first episode and I got just a bunch of really played dialogue straight off the bang. And I kind of did an eye roll and was like, oh God, here we go. This is this is what this is going to be for like four seasons. And many days of my life. So I was definitely not bullish on it. And by the time I got to, I don't know, episode five, I was totally hooked. I absolutely loved the show. I had to use a ton of restraint to not start watching season three because I wanted to wait until after we got done with this episode. And I think the show is absolutely fantastic. I think it's one of the best things out there. It's certainly one of the best space things out there. I would even go so far as to say this is as good, if not better, than Battlestar Galactica. And I think the only thing that Galactica has on it is that it's Battlestar Galactica. But it's that good. Cinematography, acting, dialogue, attention to detail is incredible. Just, I absolutely love this show. And I can't, it's so good. It's so flipping good. Next. So, yeah, I'm uh, likewise interested to hear what you have to say, C-Lab, uh, having read the books, because I didn't even know this series was based on books until, I don't know, I got like halfway through the first season and talked to somebody else that was nerding out about it and then realized that uh, it was based on a book series. And weren't uh, aren't the writers involved with Game of Thrones as well. Um, one of the guys, Ty Frank, is a former assistant to George R.R. R. Martin uh, in the writing space. So not with the show and somewhat with the books, I believe. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah, I, I knew there was some connection there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess not a very big one, so never mind. Well, I think, I think you know, it, it's reasonable to say that he probably worked quite closely with George Martin. So it might actually be a, a hefty connection, but I just don't know the details. Right. And James S.A. Corey is actually a pen name for the writing team, correct? Yeah, two, two people, yeah. Yes, which I finally figured out at the end of that 30-minute uh, interview video. Oh, yeah? 
That was a good video, though. It was awesome. But I was like, well, hang on. I want to hear. Let's let Ben finish. How about that? That's a good idea. <laughs> well. How about that? I'll, I'll keep it brief. I, I mean, really, Kev, you, you kind of said it all there. I, I, I could reiterate all of that. I think you really covered it all, man. I, one thing I really did enjoy about the show was the, the design of like the ships and the stations. It reminded me a lot of the artwork of Chris Foss. Um, who, uh, my brother used to have like a bunch of like hardcover, like, you know, artwork books. And he had one that, that Chris Foss had done a bunch of artwork in. Was, I used to just sit in front of that thing all the time when I was a kid. Otherwise, I think Kev pretty much wrapped it up. The acting, the writing, the story, everything's great. If I may ask, can I, can I ask Jarhigo a quick question? Cause we both love this show and we both watched it together. What did you think of my Battlestar sort of comparison? I definitely got some uh, some some BSG vibes, Kev, for sure. Story wise, it's not the same, but there's something about the production of the show and the the fact that they decided to go with um, you know pretty realistic flight physics and mm. um, the just the way it's filmed, the lighting and all of that reminded me of BSG a little bit. Totally. Um, and the way the the story pans out, like the way they jump from group to group kind of like there's definitely some similar stuff going on there between those two shows but uh i like that i miss bsg so it's cool to have something different that that harkens back to the same kind of qualities yeah i i would say it's 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 almost just the quality of yeah the production, like the the level of detail, if just like the whole package very much reminds me of BSG because it's just got that great attention to detail in every single, you know, corner. Mm. And it lifts from a lot of things too, you know, like there's there's definitely sprinklings of Battlestar, there's sprinklings of, you know, there's even sprinklings of Halo, for Christ's sake, with the uh, the vomit zombie stuff. And there's, there's quite a, a variety of sci-fi classics sprinkled throughout. Yes, for sure. Right. I don't know what a vomit zombie is yet, so don't spoil it for me, please. Well, you you do. It's just uh, they chose to only have like the main point of the entire first book be one episode on Aerostation where five people fall over dead. Oh, I gotcha. The proto molecule basically like twenty eight days later style zombie. Everyone freaks out and eats each other and explodes and dies in vicious, horrible ways, but. It was probably a major budget issue as to why they couldn't really go there with it. I mean, it definitely has kind of like a, the book at least when I read it was quite Halo-ish and it's like, you know, the flood or whatever. Maybe the connection's a bit tenuous, but. Now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, like the, some of the armor and the helmets and, you know, it was very Master Chief-esque sort of. Yeah, for sure. You know, some of the Martian armor, you know, had that kind of feel to it a little bit. Yeah. Um, but as far as, yeah, as far as high level for me, um, in a way, like I spent a lot of time, a lot of time thinking about this and how I wanted to approach the conversation because nobody wants to listen to somebody bitching for an hour about like the differences between a book and a show. So except me and Jarhigo, except you two, I just kind of thought a lot about it. And in a, in a funny way, I kind of like went through the seven stages of grief with this whole thing <laughs> where like, wow. Um, you know, at first you're kind of like, meh, it's not as good as the book, but, and then nah. as time goes on, you kind of like come to terms with what it is and the constraints that they were under. And, and then even, you know, further down that path, you circle back to appreciate what, what they were, 
what they were attempting to do. So, um, yeah, as far as like super high level for me, I'm not a huge fan of sci-fi TV. I've never really connected with a lot of it just because of the constraints. I'm kind of realizing that sci-fi TV is constrained by the business model of television and kind of needing to over-dramatize things. And I'm so tied up in the books that it definitely kind of like, I don't know, had a a shadow over my viewing, but I do appreciate what they're doing. And I'm really looking forward to the upcoming seasons, you know, so I get the feeling that seasons three and four already done are are quite a step forward. And then I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to the new stuff coming up with Amazon. So yeah, I mean, Chad, I feel your pain. But I've over the years developed a sort of mental gymnastics that I put myself through. And I really I, I so that I can enjoy both things. I just treat them as two separate things. Mm, yeah, I am never worried about a film adaptation going, you know, one for one with a book or vice versa, because you just end up disappointed or jaded or pissed off. And, you know, it's it's a trick because no one's trying to fucking piss you off. No, of like course. you said, things yeah. happen because of, you know, practical constraints or budgetary constraints or, you know, time constraints, even something's bound to get left out, you know, something's bound to not be as you imagined it in your mind. So instead, I just really try to enjoy the thing for what it is. That being said, I haven't read the books yet because actually, quite frankly, because I wanted to avoid this conundrum, you know, and I've never done it this way before. I've never done it where I've watched a show or a movie before I read a book. So it'll be interesting to see in reverse, like, I'm hoping it plays out well. I think it will. And I like one of the things I really want to push in this episode is is convincing you to read the books um, as a companion to the show, you know, in the sense that like season one is book one and you've already watched season one, two, three, four. So it would be a decent time to read book one because it's not going to spoil anything. And it just kind of adds flavor as opposed to ruins what you've already seen. You know what I mean? Not happening. Yeah. Well, there's a new Alistair Reynolds book out. Is there? There's a new William Gibson book out. I can't, and I can't even get to those because I'm trying to scramble through fucking the Hyperion Cantos, so. Yeah, I just finished that. Um, Yeah, fair enough. Well, I mean, regardless, I'm not saying read it today. I'm just saying that, like, I think that, uh, I think that reading the series of books as the shows come out without spoiling the shows would be something I would recommend to anybody listening. If you haven't read any of it, like, you can, you can kind of use them as added lore and or a deeper dive and and i think that i think that you will appreciate it more as opposed to it ruining the show so to speak but i think like this series in particular i find interesting because it literally sits on the boundary halfway in halfway out of the new era in in cinema or filmmaking i suppose the first two three seasons on sci-fi had certain constraints and now that it's in a streaming portfolio with amazon it's it has the opportunity to really broaden itself out and and push the medium forward i feel like a lot of my frustrations with the first two seasons probably directly come from the fact that in order for tv to be successful it needs to be really punchy and really dramatic and 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 fit into those very very tight constraints so i'm very optimistic about the series going forward and i still appreciate the series for what it is and it it wasn't a shit show the only real complaint i have is that it was over dramatic i can see that like there's a million differences and a lot of people online talk about the books very similar to the show they just they they always ends up in the same place but how it gets there is slightly different and that's fine and everything but the only legit complaint i have is the drama the two examples that i have that we can dig into a little bit later are um there's way too much drama between the crew of the resonante like they're super tight and like 
legitimate like family and they don't shit talk and they don't backstab and they don't scream at each other. They're like super tight. And similarly, Bobby is like the most hardcore rock solid professional soldier and doesn't flip out and doesn't fucking beat people to death. And like it just it was just kind of clearly because they needed to punch it up for the show. So it was interesting to observe that the show started on TV and now ends up in streaming, if that makes sense. That does make sense. Okay, so I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to go back in time here because I haven't responded to anything in a in a little bit. Firstly, I want to just touch on what Jarhigo said about mental gymnastics going from a book to a film or a TV show and add a different perspective. Most of the time, I'm excited to see what's different. And I tend to look at the positives in both. And oftentimes, I get psyched about both. So if I read a book, I'm like, oh, I just love this from the book. And it's like, oh, but the show is great. And I really like how they did this in the TV show. You know what I mean? So I think one of you sort of touched on that. But that's that's how I tend to look at that that stuff. Yeah. The dramatics, the overdrama. I don't know because I haven't read the books, but I that I can totally see like straight away, like Bobby Draper, like the the crew. And and again, it harkens back to what we've talked about numer I feel like we've talked about this a lot recently, is being bold and taking risks. I, I wish that productions would be more bold to do something a little more I don't I don't know if demure is the right word but where where it is like that where the, it's like the the crew is just they're tight they're a family they they take care of each other they don't make fun of each other they don't rip on each other and do all those totally overly cliche tropey things that we've seen in a million television shows you know I I would love to see something like that I would love to see you know, the hardcore soldier who's, you know, it's, it's just such a shame that more of that isn't done, I guess is what I'm saying. And it probably will go that direction in the upcoming seasons. But for the first two, it was it jumped out at me for sure. Absolutely, man. And I, I can totally see it. Like I knew right away what you were talking about. And I mean, the funny thing to me is that like, compared to other TV shows, I think the dialogue's great. And I don't think it's full of cliche, mm. cliche-esque uh, tropey nonsense. Like I, I, I commend the show for that. But in in comparison to the book, I, I totally see what you're saying. The only other thing I wanted to say was I had no idea that this started on Sci-Fi until you just said that. Oh, okay. I thought that this was straight up an Amazon show. No, it'd be worth it'd be worth a quick digression into the pedigree there if you want. Yeah, I, I um, I think it's great that it landed on Amazon because. I think they certainly have the money and the muscle to put more into it. I'm, I'm really glad that the show got saved by Amazon because that certainly happened before with Netflix. Uh, Netflix took over Trailer Park Boys, which is a wildly popular Canadian series um, that spawned all kinds of little side things and movies and so forth. And if anybody out there hasn't seen Trailer Park Boys, you got to check it out. Um, also, it's, it's sort of ironic because originally Stargate – the TV series got canceled and sci-fi was the one that saved it. Right. So it's sort of ironic that it's flipping. It's, it's probably just because sci-fi is probably, you know, along with most television is getting to the doomed stage. And so they really need to run a tight ship and can't take as many risks. So I get it. I totally get why it was canceled, but I'm very thankful that they saved it. Absolutely. Do you recall much of the story on that one, Benny, or? 
The story on what? The cancellation and the fans saving it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was uh, I was gritting my teeth, hoping that somebody was going to pick it up because I was way into it. Yeah, cool. So did you watch it from when it first came out and watched it each year, or did you binge it more recently? Or I think I discovered it um, while the first season was running. Yeah, okay. And then I've pretty much been into it since. Yeah, because I, I read... I read the books when they came out and kept forgetting that I'd read them. You know, like the new book would come out two years later and I'd be like, oh, that looks interesting. And I remember one time I read the first book again because I was like, oh, I don't think I've read these. And I got like three quarters of the way through the first book before I remembered that I'd read it. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I've read this before. So I'd read them a few times and and then watched the first season. And because the first season was reasonably close, I just left it and hadn't touched it again until we decided to do the show recently. So I completely missed all of the failings and savings and all that stuff. Oh, wow. So you're, I shouldn't say anything about the, the, the coming seasons as you, I would be spoiling it for you guys. For Kev. Yes. For me, I, I know everything because I've read all, all eight, eight of the published books. So, but right. I think, I think it would make a lot of sense to stick just to seasons one and two so that any listener can know exactly what they're in for, for spoilers. No, we have to stick to one and two because I purposely did not go on to three. Like I finished two like on Tuesday and I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to see the next episode. And then I was like, don't do it. Must resist urge to watch season three. Nerd gland throbbing must stop. Don't worry about it on our account because we've seen all of it, Kev. I know, but I, I I wanted to keep the focus tight on the show and not start like drifting into like, oh, and this this happens and bah, 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 bah. you know, like I don't know. I, I just wanted to do it like that, you know. And I I wasn't sure what you had done either, Ben. So I just, was there like, are, there are things that you guys are talking about that like I am I am constantly tempted to be like, yeah, but you know, you see uh, that improves <laughs> here or there or everywhere. I, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And I I can't do it because you know we're we're not. Yeah. Yeah. Part of the way that I'm talking about this is I'm I'm aware that it's extremely likely that certain things will go in a certain direction in terms of how, you know, like a good example is like it's very obvious that if a crew stays together for a long time they become more of a family. So like by definition that's a highly likely outcome, but just talking about seasons 1 and 2, you know, was my comment on it fumbling around a bit. Like maybe just to close out the high level stuff, Kev, uh, one thing that jumped to mind for me was that in one of the recent episodes, I think it was one of the Star Wars episodes, you mentioned that in your opinion Marvel and the MCU is this generation's Star Wars. And um uh that was you, dude. <laughs> was it? Yes. <laughs> I thought it was you. No, that was definitely not me. That was 100% you. I specifically remember that. I don't remember anything, but I remember that minute of that episode. Okay, well, to expand on that then, no pun intended. Um, ah, I like what you did there. Hey, I, I'm going to... If Marvel's MCU is this generation's Star Wars, then I'm going to argue that The Expanse has the opportunity to be this generation's Star Trek. That is a massive statement that you just made right there. Mm. I think that especially with the streaming thing, they have the chance. Especially especially since we have Discovery and Picard out right now. Yep. Like, that is huge. I think the world building in this series that these guys have put together with these books has is so much material that they, they could very easily become this generation Star Trek. They have the opportunity if they don't fuck it up. Hmm. Yeah, it depends on depends on what you do once you get past the main story, you know. Is there an interesting side arc to talk about? And if there is, then yeah, they definitely could. Jed, I'd watch it. Yeah, for sure. 
All right, keep watching it. <laughs> it's not going to be Star Trek in the sense that, you know, we're not going to get Save the Farmer episodes on planets called Sorghum. Still can't believe that. <laughs> but I, I get it, man. I get the comparison. But I think that it's a, it, the analogy to me is Star Wars is pupil lasers and samurais in space, and it has, a, it has quite a broad universe. Similarly, MCU has a lot of great base material, but like Star Trek always had a, a more rabid fan base, you could argue, had the convention stuff and people frothing over it and had a bit more of a realism to the science and or a little bit harder science fiction-y stuff. So like it fits in that sense. Hmm. Hmm. I could see it, but I also kind of feel like that type of show is another thing that's dying away. I feel like things are becoming more self-contained and people mm. just have an appetite for a, a, diff- a different story when they're done with it. You know, um, I don't I don't know if this is any indication, but we were talking about BSG earlier and, you know, there was a spinoff of that Caprica, which didn't do so well. Um, didn't do anything. Yeah. And, and spinoffs in general seem to not do well. So that's my only outside of Star Trek, that is. <laughs> <laughs> through the lens of the pre what I would argue is the previous era of television. And right. One of the things that a lot of our listeners may be aware of is that Jeff Bezos, when he, when he launched Amazon prime to compete against the other streaming services specifically said he wanted the next game of Thrones. And because he's obsessed with space and has blue origin, his space company, it's kind of no surprise to me that he chose to save. And he specifically by himself chose to save the expanse. There's a, there's a quote, from him saying like he called his his money people and was like i'm sitting in the room with the expanse guys i just talked to them can we save the show please 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 and they called him back and said yes so like i think because he wants the next game of thrones which is essentially like saying i want the next mega franchise it wouldn't surprise me at all if they go the disney route with branching off eventually but in the meantime they've got you know five more books which is at least five more years of content you know that's really cool that he did that and said that and really disappointing at the same time why um i'm i don't know i'm just gun shy about that i want the next mega franchise attitude but the writers of the of the books wrote the books to be television series and they wrote the books to be entertainment instead of high art so i get it i'm just I'm just so over that I'm looking for the next me- mega franchise thing. I'm I'm so over it already. And like I'm not I'm not only over it, I'm bitter about it. Like <laughs> uh Steamroller is is uh disengaging in neutral. Is there any anything you want to chime in, Benny? No. <laughs> and we're done, everybody. I just don't have much to say about the business side of things. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I'm not here for that. Let's move into the actual seasons. I think uh, it's a good a good enough reason to segue. Season one. What did you guys think of season one? The first time you saw it, in terms of how it unfolded and the story overall, whatever you want to dig into. Uh, Jerhigo, go ahead. Uh, no. Okay, I will go in <laughs> his stead then. <laughs> I feel like he's over there making a bomb. I can't see him. And it's <laughs> he's like either putting like poison on the tips of darts that he's going to shoot at us or he's making a bomb. <laughs> no, I just I just have Miller's bomb. That's like I have to press the button every 30 seconds or it starts going bomb, bomb, bomb. <laughs> nice. And he's like he's like listening to us going, should I let it go now? No, I'll give him another minute. Yeah. 
These guys are still fucking babbling about business models. It's just like it's it's just far enough like heavy, and I can't move it. It's just far enough away where I, I can't stay near the mic. When this started, I thought. You know, when Alex came into the first scene and was like, you know, please move your tray tables to the upper. I just was like, I rolled my eyes, like literally a full 360 in my head. I was like, come on, this cannot be the opening of this show. Like this, I was like, this is going to suck. This does suck. And Holden as well, I was just like, come on. So when did it shift then? I don't know. I, I would say... It shifted probably by episode four, certainly five. It just started started to click more, and it was it was just more was unfolding, you know, and like the Doniger was getting blown up, and Shed loses his head, kind of stuff. For yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I, I think it was probably around the time of the Doniger, yeah, like yeah, four, you know. But in the beginning, I just was like, this is just tropetastic garbage. I, I really did for the first like. 30 minutes of the first episode, I was just like, I can't believe this is like this. And by the end of the first season, I was just absolutely wrapped. It's so damn good, man. Mm. Great acting, world building, sets, cinematography is fantastic. I love the physics. All the science that's included in the show is great. Props, guns, just everything, man. It's so good. Totally. Kev, in... in uh I'm pretty much with you. It took me a little while to warm up to it, um, for sure. Um, in in direct regards to Alex making the seat tray in the upright position comment, yep, I'm with you there. But then as you see the show, you kind of realize that Alex is totally the type of guy that would not shy away from using a shitty cliche. Yeah, he's just a wise ass. <laughs> he's just that type of guy. So, it, it you know, like, it's one of those things, a lot about this show, like, takes a while for it to unfold but when it does you're like oh okay you know it's like as it unfolds more things seem to make sense no you're right and Cass Anvar just wow what an incredible actor and he is you know really going back and watching episode one and episode two uh yesterday and today and now having known 23 episodes of season one and two he has just created a absolutely wonderful character in Alex. And you see exactly what you just said, Ben, like why and how he would say something like that. Cause he has this cool kind of, and, and if he, if he just, if he nudged the needle on this, like one degree in either direction, it, it would probably sour a lot of people, I think. But he's got this kind of cowboy Southern thing almost like a like a like a trucker or yeah. like like i said like a cowboy and he's got a drawl yeah he does and from mars yeah exactly <laughs> it's like he idolizes that so he just that's what he does yeah yeah but n- not in it not in a way of like you know like demolition man for instance where it's like you know the movie set in the future but of course sandy bullock is like the biggest 90s nostalgia fan ever and it's like so we get all these contemporary references like it's not like that he he just he he threads the needle so beautifully with that character yeah and i'm sorry to kind of dive into like a a, a character thing or a cast thing right now but he's so good and he's been in other stuff that is good too. He's an incredibly talented Canadian actor. 
And this showcases that talent. Yeah, he's great. I love him. So, But getting back to the high level on season one for me, I think, you know, I, I shared your feeling at first of kind of being like, eh, I don't know. Like, I just was watching it because there wasn't really anything else on at the time, I guess. And uh, I want to say it was right about when they get picked up by the Doniger. It's actually the, the thing that really caught me was the scene with uh, Greg Brick as Lopez and he's doing the interrogations and he pulls out the little like spherical focus pill and takes it and start like his pupils dilate. And I was like, at that point, I was like, OK, this is interesting. Like it dragged me in and um, and I was curious and there was something going on. Like I was like immediately I was like, what the fuck was that thing he just took? Did he just is that like some kind of, you know, and, like they never explain it. And, uh, you know, that that was like a specific moment I can think of where I really got drawn into the story mm. and have been since. Just a quick aside, Greg Brick played uh the father in the Far Cry 5, and he was really great in that, yeah. Ooh, interesting. Haven't played the Far Cry, Far, Far Cry series, but I know that it is revered, so. That was the first one I, I did, but uh, I really enjoyed the hell out of it. Right on, man. Yeah, same. I've heard of a lot about it, but I haven't played it. That's cool. It's a cool little uh, nugget. Yeah. High-level season one for me, I'll... I'll touch on the first interaction with the story in terms of reading it because it's so similar but like similar for me in the books they're similar enough where there's no point in digging into the great detail but there wasn't the tray table line so i think for me where i got grabbed was the space truckers doing their thing hauling ice whatever and then they go out to do something they don't want to do and check on the scopuli and things just like heat up real quick where the the ship comes out of cloak and you're like oh shit and um holden's on the radio with his his fling at the time and the whole thing just blows up it's just like a a very action heavy sequence that really you know fired it up and then that goes straight into the doniger thing in which it all happens again and so similarly like you get you get sucked in pretty quick and i enjoy um i enjoy how it goes from space truckers to action sequences and then and then just shifts into a noir which was uh, unexpected. And, you know, as we've mentioned a few times in previous shows, like the whole alcoholic noir detective kind of pulpy thing has been done a million times, but I still enjoy it every time I see it usually. So I definitely dug the noir elements in the in the first um, season slash book. Hmm. You're referring to like Miller's arc? Yeah, exactly. I, I like yeah. the multiple characters, Lord of the Rings style, you know, multiple groups and or people having multiple threads that weave together towards the end of the book, you know? And and the noir element was unexpected, considering the whole first couple of bits is space truckers and space action. Yeah, there's a lot I might touch there. Um, I'm always every time every time they introduce like a new character, or a new set of characters, it's like, you know, it's going to intertwine somehow and you're waiting for it to happen, like to see how it's going to happen if you haven't read the books mm. like myself. Um, but, you know, it's almost guaranteed to happen. Uh, most recently, uh, you know, like they introduced Prax and um you know at first i'm like okay this is all right this is different what's going on here and but then i was like oh well how is he going to find his way to uh <laughs> to the crew of the resonante you know so it's always that kind of a thing yeah i mean it's like that in most stories at least sci-fi books or you know yeah for sure but it almost it almost always seems to um get directly involved yeah you know like whereas i think um you know, I think it's conceivable that Miller's art could have played into the story just fine without him ever having set foot interacted directly with the crew of the Rosinante, you know? So Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, for sure. When I said space truckers describing Alex, I when I said trucker rather, I was not implying 
that I felt the show had a space truckers feel to it. I No, no, that was my statement. Yeah. I was thinking more alien style, you know, private company hauling ice kind of thing. Fair enough. I just I actually I just the word space truckers. <laughs> it's just so stupid. <laughs> It reminds you of uh, the Winnebago and Spaceballs or something? Uh, Yeah, but see, the Winnebago and Spaceballs was intentionally dumb and awesome. Like, I'm really thinking of, like, other crappy science fiction films where it's like, you know, hey, they're like a space trucker. Like, oh, okay. (laughs) Like, (laughs) that was real creative, you know? Anyway, whatever. Um, Mm, Wasn't there there actually a space trucker movie? Like, I think there was. um, I I, I know there is, but what I'm... I guess debating here is whether or not it was actually called space truckers or whether it was called something else. I think it was, man. I'm just going to say yes. I, I I don't think we yeah. need a Jimmy Google for that one. Let's just say yes. Oh, Jimmy's already here with me. Sorry. Oh, then there's also the, the deep purple song. Okay. <laughs> hey, Jimmy, run over to the deli and give me a sandwich. Um, a, a little bit more high level. I thought you were waiting for Jimmy to tell you something. The- Sorry, Jimmy just did tell me something. They're out of sandwiches at the deli, but there was a movie in 1996 called Space Truckers. There you go. On the on the space trucker thing, regardless of the term being cringy or not, the um the belters essentially as a group are being treated as such, and whether or not it's accurate, or whether it's the source of the kind of like you know, racism. Um, there's like the politics and the social conflict was a really great layer to the whole thing. Yes. Yes, it was. You guys both still participating in this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Full disclosure and no surprise to any of the two of you. I just got stuck on space truckers. I'll, I'll save that for later. So, um, yes, politics. I'm with you. Awesome. Good. Yep. <laughs> I fucking hate you, dude. I know you do. <laughs> I know you do. I'm sorry. I am. I yeah. I don't know. That's uh, it's definitely a, an interesting layer to the story. Are you guys not into the politics side of things? Because like one of my obsessions is like geopolitics and kind of like power structures and the differences between leadership decisions and like people on the ground getting crushed under the boot stuff. And so that type of layer to a book or a story, I love. I, I don't like go nuts over it. I am very, well, I mean, I am very interested in those those sort of things. I'm very interested in social dynamics and the way people interact. So that's a broad way of sort of covering what you're saying, Chad. So to me, this show, I do like the political stuff. It, it is because the political stuff is the the absolute um, commentary on what's happening in our contemporary society. Mm. And, you know, that's that's what they're talking about. And I really like how they have, you know, I mean, look, we've talked in the past when we've done science fiction films about how science fiction typically is a commentary on what is happening in the world or a social commentary. And this is no exception. And I love the way that they do it. And I I like how the politics are woven into it. I really thought the character of Christian was like, I'll be honest, super annoying in the beginning. Like again, first couple of episodes, I was just like, I roll, who is this? 
I was like, who is this annoying woman? And like by the end of the first season, I was like, I love everything about her. I love the way she talks. I love everything. She's fantastic. And I like the way what her motivations are and the way those are all playing out. It's very full and very well fleshed out. And I really enjoy that. And I'm talking about her as a character and the way all the political machinations are fleshed out. It, it's it's really interesting and really good. And I like how the human race has sort of conquered the solar system, number one. I, I don't think we've ever seen anything where it's we've colonized basically asteroids and these sort of lifeless moons and other planets in the solar system. I, I love that. I was like, wow, this is fantastic, man. You know, and to have... It's like medium future. Yeah, it is medium future. And to have the Epstein drive like that, I was like, wow, how cool is this? So it's like, it's not, you know, magical warping or magical hyperspace like Star Wars and Star Trek. Like this is like somewhere in between and I dig it. You know, it's it's like traditional propulsion that we have now with a little bit of like science sprinkled onto it to make it more efficient. So, you know, a drop of fuel lasts for a long time. Mm. Very, very cool. Uh, I'm sort of getting off off the topic of the politics. But yeah, I just, I like the way that the politics are laid out because that's intertwined with the social commentary. And I like the way it's laid out where you've got these, you know, the belters are sort of the people under the boots and then you got the Mars and, you know, Mars kind of was under the boots and now they're not. And, you know, interesting dynamics there. Really, really like it a lot. Do you dig in on the politics stuff, Benny, or is that not really your flavor normally? You know, I think in, in maybe in the books, it would appeal to me more. It seems a little too, I mean, it, it's not too, too is the wrong word, but it's it's very much... I feel like representative of something going on now, which I'm less inclined to be into um, for entertainment purposes. Right. Um, something, something like Dune where it's like far flung and very different, you know, like then that sort of storytelling becomes interesting for me. The expanse is more about the characters. It's more character driven to me. That's more what I'm interested in and the overarching story, but the, the politics and the power plays, I just, like every time something happens with that stuff, I'm kind of annoyed, you know, <laughs> like somebody's fucking somebody else over, or, you know, there's all this like the intrigue and the, and the like that stuff kind of isn't, I don't know, that's not my favorite aspect of the story. Yeah, it's a lot more subtle in the book. So you're right there. It's um, basically the entire second book is a political thriller. And the first book is essentially all noir vomit zombie stuff. So like Avasarala and Bobby don't show up until the second, wouldn't show up until the second season at all. So they wouldn't even be in the first season if it was accurate. But I feel like pulling everything forward gave them more time to kind of let things breathe a bit. Otherwise, it would have been even more rushed on all the intrigue stuff. So I kind of get why they did what they did. Mm. Yeah, that being said, you know, I, I do love uh, Avasarala. I think that character is terrific. Yeah. I think this is a good opportunity to circle back to the cast a little bit, just to touch on that one, where my first impressions watching it were the cast is too pretty. Um, but you're always going to end up with a, I had a different vision in my head bullshit when you've read the books. Yeah, I, yeah, that was, I think that was part of my irritation in the beginning as well. When like, you know, Stephen Strait came out and I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like. Like my first, my first impression was Thomas Jane should have been Holden. It, it would have fit much better. But um, because like my impressions of Miller were like Dennis Franz from NYPD Blue, like fat kind of balding, washed out dude. Um, 
So mm. like now that would have been a, a bold, nice, bold move right there was to make Miller somebody else and put Tom Jane in the Holden character. Yeah, I I like that actually. Just to be I, crystal clear, like I have nothing against the cast members, the people that play the roles. It was more just casting choices, you know. So now that I've I'm two seasons in, I'm totally on board with everything, but my first impressions were that. All right, I, I'm gonna echo what you said because I I, I want to be clear here too. Like I am not making a commentary on Stephen Strait's acting ability. I think he's fantastic. I think the whole cast is fantastic. Mm. And I'm certainly not going to sit and trash talk another actor. I can't do that. No, no. It's just interesting choices that were made originally that do or do not translate. No, 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 no. I'm, I was really refer- – I was referring to their – the production's casting choices of, of ca- casting some very good-looking people, you know. And we get to see Stephen straight with no clothes on straight away. And, I mean, the guy's – you know, he's ripped like uh, Captain America, well, Chris Evans, like Captain America, you know. But I do, you know, thinking back, like, you know, Tom Jane is, he's done a lot of stuff. And I was, for about two seconds, I was like, I don't know how I feel about him in this. And then I was psyched that he was in it. Like, he's definitely the, when Chad and when you and I were talking on the phone the other night, I was, I brought up Raymond Chandler and Philip Marlowe and, you know, that whole detective thing, the noir thing, all of that stuff um, comes from Chandler. He, he basically invented that, you know, and then Dashiell Hammett iterated on that with the Sam Spade character, uh, famously played by Humphrey Bogart in the Maltese Falcon. And, you know, that, that stuff is not new. People love the detective. It has been iterated on numerous times. We saw an entire story in the Animatrix called Detective Story that was very similar. That being said, you very easily could have written off like what Tom was doing in the beginning with Miller. And I, I kind of was like trying not to roll my eyes. And I was like, I want to see what happens here because this is sort of tricky to play. And he really added a lot of depth to it. And I thought it was fantastic, actually. But that said, I really like your comment about him playing Holden and putting somebody else like I would have loved to see. And again, this is nothing against Steven Strait or any of the other actors. Like, I love the show the way it is. But what you said, like, I would love to have seen a bold choice where they put a atypical actor in a lead role like the detective role like somebody that wasn't like a perfectly beautiful chiseled person you know and went with something different and then put tom jane in the steven in the uh not the steven straight role <laughs> the holden role i think he would have been really cool as holden actually mm. we can talk about what if all day here but we we should probably talk about what is oh um shut down and, uh <laughs> I think Thomas Jane was great as Miller. I, you know, considering that the alcoholic detective thing is kind of a serious cliche, it's been done a million times. The fact that, you know, though it may have started off a little cookie cutter, he brought so much depth to that character and he brought something really interesting to it. And to, to do that to something that is, is such a cliche to make it, that character interesting. Uh, I thought, I thought that was great, you know, and sure somebody else, might have done great too, but they didn't. <laughs> so um, I got to give him mad props for that. Not not to say that he couldn't be a good Holden, but he was a great Miller. So, and I think he would probably have been a good Holden. That would have been a big challenge for him. But uh, 
like you said, it's there's a lot of what ifs out there. The um the only other commentary on kind of the initial thinking of the cast is like Alex and Amos are both supposed to be ten ish plus years older than Holden and Naomi, so that they're kind of more schlubby and more of like you know Amos is more of a big lug and Alex is more of a kind of like you know mid forties chubby balding dude as well. So it's not really critical, but um, the uh, the cast was too pretty thing is something that I'm well over now. Like it's not a big deal anymore. Mm. You know, I I actually think um, I know we're sort of hanging out in the cul-de-sac circling around, but I don't know, man. I think that I think the Miller character is the harder character to play. And I, I, I think for Tom, and I think that he really, he really walks the line with that one. He does a good job with it. Really good job with it. Mm. It's, it's tricky to do that. It's tricky to pick up like a, a, a super troped out archetypal character. So Raymond Chandler invented that archetype and it's been done a zillion million times and to pick it up and do it in from yet another perspective, I think is fantastic. So hats off to Tom. Yeah. And the, the Holden character, I don't think, well, I'm, I'm actually really curious to ask a season two question to you guys. Do you, did you guys get the vibe of a dramatic shift in Holden's character in season two? Mm, in what sense? Like, was his arc in season one compared to his arc in season two and who he was and how he acted drastically different or totally the same in your perception of watching the two seasons? Um, perhaps subtly, but nothing stuck out to me too much. But then again, Holden isn't really a character that I hone in on, you know, yeah. like granted he's you know, where he comes in in the story it's you know, you can't ignore it, but his arc tends not to be one that I pay much attention to. Right. For whatever reason. It's just not a um not that I hate the character, but it's just not a character that I like super uh identify with, I guess. Yeah. So it might have been lost on me. I didn't feel like there was a ton of shifting with his character. I, I don't know. I mean I could be wrong, but I feel like Steven Strait's made some good choices as an actor working with the adapted scripts, you know, and I will say that I, I thought it was kind of odd that he he works to keep a cool head and to be the rock that is sort of running the show. But then he he f- seems to fight these instinctual urges to kind of, you know, save the day or save people or do particular tasks. And he he really like hounds on these certain things. Like when they see the creature for the first time on the thermals and he's, you know, screaming at Alex to chase the thing. And he's just like, he's relentless sometimes. It's kind of interesting. But I, I feel like we've kind of seen that from the get go because the second the Canterbury got destroyed, he like, you know, rips Alex out of the seat and he's like, we're going, you know? So he, he kind of goes back and forth between those two things. What I did find odd was that in the very first episode when he's on the Canterbury and the captain's like, you know, throws him the XO badge and he's just like, yeah, no, not into it. Nope, nope, nope. And it, it's clear that he doesn't want to do it, you know, and, and I feel like he flip flops real fast. And I don't know if that exactly fit or if that was the right choice or the choice I would have made or that was the way the writing should have gone or whatever the hell happened there. But that was the only thing that I found odd. It's an interesting point because he is already XO in the books and there's none of that flip-floppy bullshit. So it's a weird choice they made. But um Yeah, why did they do that, man? That that see like now hearing that from you, I just that that it's just so pointless. Like why bother? It's 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 15 minutes of one episode. It might have it might have been because without that hesitance, it might have been misinterpreted by by the audience 
that he was power hungry and wanted to be in charge because like some of the subtleties of of who's going to take command and they're voting like a democracy and stuff he kind of just like no i'm in charge now you know so i don't know it's it's not really worth digging into but it is a very interesting point it's a very interesting example that you bring up um the reason i asked the question in the first place is because like the way that it's supposed to unfold is kind of like season one he's running away just like everybody else on the canterbury is from real life but he's a good person who tries to make the right decision and do the right thing which the first example of that is is him going to go and and um check out the distress beacon so like it sets up pretty early that he's like trying to do the right thing at all costs um and then towards the end of season one he gets infected or he doesn't get infected with the protomolecule but he watches eros melt down he's one of the only people that gets off eros and so from then on he's terrified of the protomolecule hence freaking out about the monster when he first sees it etc etc but one of the things that i thought was kind of missed in the second season was that like he's essentially supposed to go from always making the right choice to bit more of a vigilante miller style like executing people and not caring about blowing people up and that tends to be like you know where naomi is just like yeah i'm not gonna go on the ship with you and she ends up on the somnambulous ship so like it's a lot more of a major focus of that book and i felt like it didn't really make it clear just how far holden had fallen towards the kind of hardcore dark side cold-bloodedness so i was curious if you guys picked up on that no it did not translate at all i did not get that at all like that was not what I got from her staying. Like the my opinion of why she stayed was seemed like a very personal reason. Like, no, you go do that. I need to do this. Like this is important. I need to I need to make amends or I need to um sort of repent for what happened with uh I think it's is it Melissa who piloted this Sun Ambulance? Yes, I believe so her husband dying, you know, like, and to help those people. That was the exact vibe I got from that whole thing. So yeah, I think uh, the portrayal in the series, it was far more subtle than what you're describing. Yeah. In the TV series than it was in the book. Um, That's all I can really say. I haven't read the book. So I don't know. But similar to everything else, like, generally speaking, the differences between the books and the show are subtle enough, or it's not really worth getting hung up on. I was just curious if it if it spoke to it at all. There, There was a sort of like, I don't know, like Holden did seem to have like a kind of like an Ahab like obsession with the proto molecule that I picked up on for sure. A great way to put it. And maybe, you know, maybe that was just like how they were trying to sell it, you know, and it might have been a bit much because, you know, it it seems pretty obvious in the series, like if, if Holden was becoming exactly like Amos, you know, Amos seems to be the type of person who is, uh, he's essentially a sociopath, but he wants to be better. So he gloms on to somebody else and borrows their moral compass. Yeah. And, you know, so, and that's, that's to- James Holden is totally that to him Yep. in this series. Um, Are you sure it's not Naomi, Ben? Well, it's, it's, it's Naomi as well, but it seems like everybody that he befriends, he borrows some part of their morality, you know? Well, he looks to them like if they're making a decision, 
he believes that their decision is going to be better than his. Yeah. Right? He even says it in the series at one point. And he speaks to he speaks to Prax at one point saying like speaking about the entire crew, including Alex, saying that he doesn't have to make the hard decisions. He lets them do it. So it, it started with just Naomi, but it's gone to be more of the entire crew. So I, I definitely think both of you are right in that sense. Yeah. I guess what I would say is Holden. Maybe Naomi is directly, you know, uh, Amos's compass, but Holden is sort of like the compass for the entire crew in the series. Yeah. Yeah. And Naomi looks to him for decision making a lot of the time, too, for moral decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Or Ben, you could kind of say that, like, because he had such a like a traumatic past and, you know, possibly some PTSD from that and he's got the sociopathic thing going on, it's almost like he realized that. He was like, I need to borrow somebody else's moral compass. And for the time being, I need to just be and allow somebody else to tell me what to do until I can figure it out and get it straightened out. And that's what he did with Naomi, right? And then as we go along and he gets to know and like Holden more, then it seems more like he starts to take little bits from Holden's personality and his compass, you know, and and then start to integrate that and become, well, not not become his own person, but just evolve as a person. Yeah, it's as if it's he's a sociopath, but it's like he recognizes that he is and he recognizes that he wants to be a better person. So he borrows his morality from whoever he thinks is making good choices, you know, making better choices than he can. And yeah, I'll agree. He does seem to, you know, in season two, when, uh, who was the, uh, the scientist that they Dresden? No. Yeah. Dresden. No, but the one that they, the one that they actually take back to Fred Johnson. Oh yeah. I don't know. That wasn't in the book. So this is a fucking weird thing. Yeah. I know you're talking about. Oh, it's, it's, um, it's not Cotillard. It's, um, Oh, what is that? (laughs) Okay. We, I think people know what I'm talking about, but essentially the scientist yeah. has had his the the beautiful mind guy that draws on the wall. Right, yeah. He's he's had he's had his his empathy erased with a magnet, basically. Yeah, yeah. They like did this to him so he could focus on his work. So he's like this weird mirror for Amos, you know. Like Amos has done this to himself essentially because of his past, you know, because of his, his terrible past. He's managed to compartmentalize his empathy and be able to think about himself for the sake of survival. Seems seems like when he meets that scientist character in the series, it really gets him thinking about himself, you know. Whereas I think you know, I think he was before, but this like it, you really start to see a change in Amos I think after that encounter. He sa- it seems like he's starting to de- really develop like he starts having these emotional moments, you know. Yeah. And that's really interesting because that scientist doesn't exist in the book at all. And Amos doesn't develop at all. And so, like, I think that the showrunners and writers have clearly chosen for that moment to be a major inflection point for Amos as a character. And it's probably a good decision because him developing as a character instead of staying the same for the next however many seasons, it just would have got boring. So, like, it it makes sense for him to evolve, even if it's slowly. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, it's nothing. It's Cortazar, by the way. It's Cortazar. Cortazar. Thank you. Um, oh, that's, that's interesting because a lot of plot points in season two seem to pivot around Corsar. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And like the way that the stories unfold in the books is, I wouldn't say calmer, but it's a little bit drier. Like there's no OPA factionalism at all. There's none of this, like shoot him up in the deck thing, wanting to steal the nukes thing, Fred Johnson losing power thing. Like there's none of that. Um, wow. 
But now I really want to read the books, man. Well, it, it's not that it's like, I guess, similar to Avasarala and Bobby, like there is some factionalism later, but it's bringing every, they choose to bring everything forward to kind of, you know, maybe weave a tighter story. And, and part of it is for whatever normal reasons, but I feel like part of it's probably also that like these writers are, are able to, they know where the books are going and so they can like sprinkle things in as opposed to when the books were being written. Like you don't really know, you don't have any hindsight to like drop nuggets in here and there to kind of start the, right. Start the chain of events at different, you know, points in time. I do think that the choice to have Amos having him being a bit more self-aware and potentially wanting to dig deeper into his being a sociopath is an interesting choice for sure. And I'm sure that that will become even more interesting as time goes on. Yeah. He's, he's a very interesting character and I think they're, they're digging into him nicely. It sounds like they're, they're giving him a little more due in the series than, than they perhaps did in the books. Yeah, for sure. Um, For sure. So that's cool. Yeah. I mean, there's one uh, moment in in season two um, that really like hit me emotionally, and they're I think they're on Tycho, and they're they're like the crew of the Rosinante is like helping out like with uh, you know disaster relief. They're handing out stuff to refugees, mm. and like there's a moment where like you know there's like a kerfuffle or whatever, and Amos just instantly reacts and like shoves this woman. He's like you know only one per person, and the little kid looks at him and he like has this like memory, you know, like this like snap. And like, it looks like he's going to start crying, mm, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good one, Benny. Nice. And what did you take away from that in terms of what, what was going on? Well, it's just, it, it, it's what I'm talking about where it seems like he's starting to develop, like his sense of empathy is coming back. And he even has a conversation with, I've already forgotten his name. <laughs> Cortazar? The sign, Cortazar. <laughs> he has a conversation with Cortazar and Cortazar is like, you know, he, he's he's explaining this stuff to Cortisar and Cortisar is like, oh, yeah, we can, you can, you know, you'll be better if you just stamp out those last ashes of empathy. Like, I can help you with it. I know how to do it. Sure. And he's like, I can. Yeah, right. Cortisone cream. <laughs> That's it. Cortisone cream. Cortisone. Extra strength. There you go. <laughs> just rub it in there. Like icy hot. It'll, it um, reduces the inflammation. Yeah. That's it. Did you? <laughs> it reduces inflammation. <laughs> the inflammation of empathy. I love it. Yeah, exactly. So to kind of like try and pull us out of this a little bit, season one is Kev's favorite space truckers meets a noir meets Halo kind of vomit zombies, which is a really interesting kind of story. And then season two is kind of the aftermath of that, where the protomolecule is now developing into something, flying towards Venus, the politics of everyone being scared shitless of a, a small planetoid flying through space, and Holden's panic. It, it it really morphs into like a espionage thriller in the second season. You know what I mean? Like it, it's clearly like you know the the proto tro the. Oh my god! I can't believe I just did that. <laughs> yes. Yes, dude. The prototrope becomes the MacGuffin, I mean, the McMuffin of the second season and everybody's sort of chasing it around and like, you know, what's, you know, who's, who's diddling who through the keyhole and all that sort of thing. You know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> did you get all that? That was a uh, ubiquitous, mendacious and polyglottal. <laughs> uh, a couple of, couple of donkey balls thrown in there too. Oh, the donkey ball. Hey man, I like that. Donkey balls. That's great. 
the um that Kenzo dude, for example, is a complete construct. The stowaway, mm. which I thought was interesting. He was a he was a mole. He was a plant by uh, Aaron Wright. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, right. He was like a black ops guy. I I, I feel like he kind of just like nothing happened with him. Like he just sort of disappeared. And I was like, wait, this has to resolve, or am I forgetting something? No, you're not. He he was just a plot device. Well, they should have done something more with his... They should have ended him a better way because... Unless he's going to come back, which he may, I don't know, but... You fucking better not. Because <laughs> that, that ended up being as, uh, to use one of my favorite terms from Jarhigo, a nothing burger of an ending for a character that had a lot of screen time and a lot of interplay in the story. Yeah. This isn't one of my two nuggets, but it turns out he is like a motion capture expert. And so he plays pretty much all of the motion captured characters in the show. Oh, interesting. Which I thought was kind of a random thing for the actor. So nothing against the actor, but the character was weird. Whoa, cool. I like that. So it's like they created, they created the role just to give the guy a little like actual FaceTime. I guess. In the series. Speaking of kind of secondary characters, what'd you guys think of the Prax thing? Uh, I, I like Prax. Yeah. I thought it was, uh, an interesting addition to the crew of the Rosinante for a period. Yeah. His like problem solving Uber scientist, really smart guy thing. I like where he's like, mm-hmm. he sees it immediately and he has to kind of like walk the crew through <laughs> what he's come up with. Yes. I like that. Yeah. There's uh there's definitely some in- interesting interactions that happened there. And in general, like just that arc of the story with the uh, Ganymede, refugees and pretty fucking shocking part when uh they basically first introduce the character and he's there with his friend who basically rescued him and then like you know it's all the shit is going on and the belter you know crew guard or whatever comes in and he's like you know oh inner worlders come with me there's a ship here we're gonna we're gonna send you guys back and then they just fucking space everybody man it's like holy fuck (laughs) yeah that was pretty hardcore yeah I, I was like kind of spacing out through it and I I had forgotten about that part and I like went back I had to like rewind it like a couple of times to like try and I was like why the fuck did they do that? Yeah. Yeah, that was seems to be really pushing the trying to like really hammer home the xenoph well, not xenophobia, the racism between planetary groups, you know? Mm. I think it's 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 a completely understandable thing, but the belters are supposed to be like a meter taller, you know, and like unable to go onto a planet, you know? So, um, which is obviously totally impossible from a filming standpoint. So it's completely understandable, but as a result, like making it crystal clear that the different factions absolutely hate each other requires, I think brutal scenes like that, I suppose. So I, I was definitely like, Oh shit, that's heavy, but it makes sense as to why they did it. I think, I think xenophobia might be the, the proper word there. Yeah, I suppose it's somewhat of a getting towards a branching of the species. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's I mean, in, in general, like you're talking about cultures, you know. Yeah. And their hatred towards each other more than, you know, the the race of somebody, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's social disparity. It's like um, the difference between natives and wash ashores when you're talking about an island community. You know what I mean? Like there's that, that to me anyway, that jumped out at me is very present. You know, it's like, you know, when, um, and my guy, we haven't, I'm like looking at the time and I'm like, we haven't even talked about so many things like Jared <laughs> Harris is such an incredible actor and he plays, um, oh, what's his face? Um, the guy that, you know, Fred and the other people elect as Dawes. the 
Anderson sort of Dawes. The, yeah, Dawes. Thank you. Thank you. Anderson Dawes. Sorry. He's terrific, but he's very, he, he very much accentuates the point of being a belter versus not being a belter. And wash ashores are not welcome. Yeah. You know, wash ashores are not belters. Like, yeah, Fred Johnson, you did this, you re, you repented, you atoned for your sins, or you're trying to atone for your sins, but you are not a belter. Holden, you are from Earth. You may have betrayed X and done Y, but you are not a belter. End of story. And also, he had the Miller, you were born in the belt, but you're acting like an Earther, and you're working for an Earth company, so get your shit together and stop being a traitor. Exactly. So, you know, that... Well, voila. Yeah. Is that... What'd you say? He's just speaking some Creole. Well, voila. Oh, right on. Some Belter Creole, totally. Um, Yeah, uh, Ben, that scene where uh, they spaced them reminds me of the whole sequence of Melissa's husband being shot to death by accident on the somnambulist, and then the whole drama of them choosing who was going to go, I I thought was really well done. And it could have just been lame as hell. And they really, really made it pretty awesome. Mm. It was really messy. Yeah. What do you you mean in terms of what? Being realistic, it it was very messy. It was very complicated. It was very, you know, what you would imagine a situation like that to be. There was no like... They did a very good job of presenting it that way and, and not, you know, sterilizing it too much for TV or, you know. Yeah, they didn't phone it in and they didn't throw it away either. I liked that. I liked how they made it exactly as it should be, you know, and it was um, it was just touching. It was really touching. There was a lot of a lot of touching parts of that. Even even like, you know, there was one actress, you know, she, she it was clear that she was with her husband and he was like the the last young man that didn't make it on and not not a lot of dialogue not not a lot there but just some really great choices and some looks and um some physical acting really conveyed a lot uh between those two actors and i i just little, little touches like that i think are what really makes the show shine and that that that's what made that particular scene really great also the big man the big man with the pipe or whatever it was that he was holding, like he just, that whole thing was so great. And that speech he gave at the end was awesome, man. Just really great. Yeah, before that takes shape, it seems like they might just take off and Amos and Melissa might get their way and they were just going to bounce. And so it was interesting, even just that Naomi being like not nah, and going out and just trying to make it work. Yeah, hmm. yeah, exactly. And I really liked how he, he kind of flipped the belter thing around, you know, where there's, it's always... There's a lot of like, you know, oh, woe is us, the poor belters throughout the whole thing, like constantly, you know, and and he kind of flipped that a little bit and was like, no, we're belters, we're we're tough, we're this, we're that, we're 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 gonna do the right thing here, we're gonna make this work, we're gonna figure this out. We figure we always figure things out, we're gonna figure this out too, or we're just gonna die together because we're tough. And I dug that. I just I just thought it was a, one one of the best scenes in seasons one and two. It was a super powerful scene. The um. The whole like we're tough belters thing really kind of reminds me of the Fremen from from Dune, you know, like the the guys that go and live in the desert and become so damn tough that they just end up taking over because they're 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 hard while everyone else is soft. And that kind of really vibes with the Anderson Dawes kind of thing too, and even the uh, OPA stuff on Tycho and stuff. So it's an interest. I really like the the belter faction, especially. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really think that you, you know, they, they, when Bobby finally, you know, goes down to 
give her testimony on Earth, you really start to understand Earthers and how they're why they're called takers and just the I was I was shocked when they were going back and forth in that sort of deposition and she was explaining like why Earth people are the way they are. And it's like everybody's basically on welfare. Like I was like, wow, what a horrible direction for everybody to go in on this planet. You know what I mean? Where it's like, there's not enough jobs. So it's like a dark vision of something like, like UBI. And, but it, the thing is, is, you know, it smacks of there not being enough to go around. Yeah. You know, um, whereas, you know, the positive version of that story is, you know, well, if there's not enough jobs then you know, everybody gets what they need to survive. And, you know, uh, people, you know, ultimately like the, the positive version of that vision would be like people get to do art or, or learn about new things or, you know, like the, the kind of, st- or whatever, like the Star Trek kind of version of things, you know, like, so this is like a very dark vision of that outcome. Sure. And it also is, it, it's also pretty clear that Bobby's viewpoint would be based on knowledge from the outside and the knowledge from the outside would be somewhat propaganda in, in the sense that all earthers are lazy, all earthers are this, all earthers are that, you know, touching on that xenophobia again, like there's probably a grain of truth in the center of that. But the actual reality, like you're saying, Ben, is probably a lot more nuanced. Yeah. But the facts of the matter, like you're saying, Kev, is there's, you know, 15 plus billion people, there isn't enough jobs to go around. So by definition, something would have to be, you know, different. And in this case, you know, the idea of basic for people and only certain people get jobs is it's interesting. It kind of ties into the Holden having multiple parents kind of thing, which was interesting too, you know, eight parents to get a tax break, to get the land kind of thing. So it's just some of the earther dynamics were, were an interesting, you know, extrapolation of things like overpopulation and global warming style issues. And I, just to be clear, I don't mean overpopulation in the old racist eugenics sense of the term. I just mean in the sense of, in these fictional novels is 15 billion people on earth. So double the population we have now, basically. Well, I mean, they're, they're, you know, again, in the, in the, in sort of typical science fiction manner, they're tackling these very real issues that we're having today, overpopulation, entitlement, like all those things are present in this show that are problems today. I feel like kind of a last stop would be arrows crashing into Venus and the like ship coming apart towards the end of the season thing, which was an interesting kind of climax to the second season the ship coming apart meaning the i forget the name of the ship like arborgrass or whatever with uh adam savage from mythbusters sitting in the bridge and 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 adam savage glossed over in vacuum (laughs) yeah dying in vacuum with the ship being disassembled (laughs) that was very cool and very interesting and i'm i i like how they're they're just letting trickles of the information of what happened um on venus come out uh i said that in a very jonky way but i think you know what i mean like i like how they're just trickling it out like what happened they're not like okay now all the focus is on eros and what happened to venus like you know it's it's like little bits little bits little bits i like it yeah i liked how we kind of breezed by this but i liked how the proto molecule on eros ended up kind of co-opting julie mao's 
brain and became Julie Mao to a degree that Miller could go and convince her to not crash into Earth. And she thought she was racing against um, the Rosinante. And then the protomolecule, you know, smashes into Venus and then also shows signs of sentience with disassembling the ship, but not the people because it's already disassembled 100,000 people on Eros. And it just kind of, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting character the protomolecule yeah i mean it's it's going about doing all these you know atrocious things but it's just trying to learn right yeah exactly that is interesting and then and then jumping back to uh miller and julie mao like i thought that was an interesting scene for sure uh with the kiss aside which i thought was i don't know for tv for tv i guess yeah definitely or maybe a fitting send-off for miller because it's pretty clear that he's you know from a distance fallen in love with who she is oh yeah yeah i didn't really i wish they had put more into that actually i didn't get a ton of that of the him being in love thing? Yeah, and I actually thought that Kiss was kind of more like, you know, if this is going to be, if I'm going to die here, this is this is going to be the last human thing I'm going to do, is I'm going to connect with this human being, like, as a, per- a person and, you know, sort of romantically as well, like, whatever, however you want to call it, you know? That's how I sort of, that's how I sort of read that. I suppose that version of it would make sense from Julie Mao's perspective, you know? That's, that's the only part about the Kiss that seems strange to me, is it's like, you know, Miller knows who she is, and and it's pretty clear that he's been following her case because he's he's got this feeling for her. You know, yeah, and he knows everything about her. Like he's yeah. like you know, in the very first episode, he's or the second episode, he's you know got that cool uh, vocal imitator, and it's he's going through her apartment, you know, and and he really really gets into her head, you know, by uncovering the pieces of her life and sort of getting into her. Her life, I think it's, uh, you know, in that way that like people, you know, they, they sort of become fans of uh, celebrities and like they, they learn everything about them and then they feel like they know them. And it's like, you don't know them, you know, or, or maybe you do, you know, I don't know. It's an interesting topic. And I, I just want to say as, a, as an aside about Miller, I, I really like how um, once he hooked up with the crew of the Rasanante, he continually put himself on the edge of his comfort zone constantly before up to and, you know, all the way up to him being with Julia. Is it Julia or Julie? It's Julia. Juliet. Juliet. Um, yeah, just jumping back a little bit. Um, it kind of says something about like Miller investigating that case says a lot about Miller, you know, and the, uh, who he is as a detective and how he goes about things. And it, you know, it's like, he really has to emotionally throw himself into something. It seems like, um, or it's the things that he's emotionally compelled to do that are the things that he, he does, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's like, he finally found something to care about. Yeah. Other than himself, somewhat. The, the whole thing seemed like that was the arc, you know, like he was going to keep going until he found Julie Mount. And when he did, he was totally resigned to, you know, just end it right there with her. Yep. A hundred percent. Like now I can die kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's exactly what I got. And, you know, there is, to my recollection, there's no kiss. And also to my recollection, Julie is like, a blob on the side of a wall. She's not like a fully formed humanoid form with some blue strings attached to her, you know, and, and, and Miller's like a fat Dennis Fran. So like it plays different when you think about it in a different context, but the core of it, I think is the same where like one of the things that I really liked about Miller is that 
he's created an image of Julie Mao that he's fallen in love with, but he's never met her. And so it makes sense for him to be like, I'm in love with you. I'm going to find you and I'm going to take my helmet off and let the protomolecule infect me and be there with you in the last human, you know, thing that he does. And it is out of love, but it's out of misguided love. It's out of like, he's created and put her on a pedestal love, you know, like she doesn't love him back, you know, so... That's what I'm. That's what I was saying about the celebrity thing a second ago. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it it ties right into that for sure. But I would clarify a little bit where I I think like you're meant to think that his intuitions about Julie Mao are a little more on the nose than say you know somebody's obsession with an, a celebrity. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Like he yeah. he really has in some way gotten inside of her head. Yeah. Yeah. It's it was it's a really interesting space that they explored because. You know, he could be as well-researched as you could possibly be, but there is a difference between being, you know, aware of someone and having actually interacted and met someone. So I, I kind of like that the first time he meets her, she's dead in a bath in a shower stall. And then the second time he meets her, she's alive, but non-human. And so it just kind of, it, it fits his his kind of character in a way because he's driven by these kind of like various motives of his personal failures and successes but the fact that he doesn't get the girl in the end in the old trope he gets the alien in the end and becomes you know a part of it i guess or whatever and dies it's a it's an interesting way to to resolve you know a detective noir trope where the detective always gets the girl generally or doesn't because he's an alcoholic and it was just kind of an interesting way to resolve a, a common trope Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, it was it was interesting, and also that she was in the uh, the sort of like Matrix Neo style proto prototrope molecule version of the <laughs> the tentacle chair. You know, <laughs> gotta love that. And then they cliffhang the uh, season two uh, in a very interesting way. So it should be interesting to watch the next couple seasons and and chat about them in more detail. Sounds uh, sounds right. I don't think we need to. Do we need to bother rating this? I don't think we need to do do that. I would like to if we have the ability to. What does that mean? Are you willing to rate it? I'm willing. Well, I would I would like to if we if you don't mind. My instinct is to rate the entire rate, rate the series. You know, in seven years as it stands. Um, yeah, in seven years when it's over. Well, well, as it stands now, you know. As opposed to, it's hard for me to jump back and think in terms of like, okay, how would I have rated season one without knowing what's going on in season two? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to like, it's hard, once it's happened, it's like hard to prize it apart. That's why I said that, yeah. I think it's okay to abstain from rating, but I'm going to rate it. So if you guys don't want it, that's fine. (laughs) This will be an EBD first. Go ahead. (laughs) Um, I think it'll come as no surprise that I rate the first couple seasons harshly, but I expect it to improve none whatsoever yeah i have no doubt that the next couple seasons are going to get a better grade and i have a lot of optimism that the seasons that have not been made yet are going to get even better but um i think for me it's a c i think it's probably going to be easily into b territory for the third and fourth season and i think it would be quite likely to get up into into the a's as things go on um especially considering that they can now swear and now you know have no time constraints and do whatever the hell they want even with the same budget with amazon like i'm really excited to see what they do with amazon Mm. absolutely um i'll go ahead and 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 do the same i i would say season one for me 
I'll go ahead and give it a B minus, and I'll give season two a B plus plus. I, I really, and I mean that's that's being harsh for me. Like I really enjoyed the entire experience, and I can't wait to dive into season three now. So I'll just keep it short and sweet. Mm. That's it. Yeah. Um. Okay. I'll give it. A, I'll give it a whirl. Chad, I'll I'll go one above you and say B minus. Fair. Yep. You know, it it took a while for the the show to resonate with me, even you know through season one, but. You know, here's the thing. I really enjoyed Miller's arc. Mm. And um, now that Miller is gone, I kind of miss him. Yeah, fair. Me too. And uh, so, you know, all the same problems that you're probably thinking of, Chad, I am thinking of, which would relate to a C. But um, because of the Miller arc and my nostalgia for that, I'll, I'll bump it up a little bit. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I think um, I think just because seasons one and two are a C for me doesn't mean they're bad by any means. Um, but it also like, aside from, from the rating, it, you get sucked in pretty quickly. Like even if it takes six episodes to get sucked in, once you're in, you, you really want to keep watching and it's really enjoyable. So it's great entertainment. Definitely. Yeah. But it's, you know, early in the show like that, every show has growing pains, you know? Yeah. Definitely. And every show, it, it seems to take a little while for the writing to get like up to speed and it seems to take a little while for the cast to gel and really vibe together, you know, and, you know, by the end of season two, we're well on our way. Things are looking good, um, you know, and I think they did a really good job with all of it. But, you know, it's just the the kind of thing you would get with any show starting off. There's always a little bit of growing pains. Yeah. Not to mention that, you know, the actors have five years under their belt now on the, on the set. So I'm sure that the it just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. Hmm. OK, so we've rated it. Uh, you guys want to talk about deaths? I don't even remember. Do you guys remember? I, I know that I had one within the first minute, and that's the only one that I even recall. I think I had another death where you Googled halfway through my abil- my attempt to like bring something of interest to the podcast. So that was me me killing yeah, you. Yeah, something like that. Murder, death, kill. Right on. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I- oh, wait a minute. Sorry, I'm totally interrupting you, Benny. I brought Star Wars up in this show, so I die by definition. Oh, damn you, dude. Wilhelm scream. That's right. And I, I, I mentioned something at the big, like right in the beginning that bombed horribly. And I don't even remember what it was. I don't remember. This is, I feel like this is kind of a serious episode. It's definitely more cerebral. No doubt about it. A lot of material to tackle. Yeah. It tends to be less deathy. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. When nobody's going for a bad joke, it's. <laughs> All my jokes are bad jokes. Exactly. Benny. Whoa, easy, dude. But sometimes they land. Right on. So let's. Uh, so we, we've uh, rated it, folks at home. We hope you've enjoyed joining us on this journey through the expanse. Um, I, can we talk about space truckers now? <laughs> you still have it open <laughs> on your phone. You know I do. And we can add it to the list as a pick if you want. I just, I just, I want to say. <laughs> I'm intrigued, okay? And here's 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 why I'm intrigued. $25 million budget, box office, 1.6 million. <laughs> wow, that's a flop. Hold on, it gets it gets better than that. Uh top actors, Debbie Mazar, who is incredible. Dennis Hopper, say what you will about him. Steven Dorf, always loved him. Charles Dance, another great actor. George Went, another almost American icon of an actor. So now I'm Can even- I cut all of this and then have it done in a robotic voice? Kev's in this episode, everybody Kev's. <laughs> in this episode, everybody Kev's. Wait, what do you mean? The the, the text to speech voice? 
Did you skip over that in your edit where we're going to create an, a whole nother offshoot podcast where it's Siri reading IMDb entries and it's 1996 Space Truckers <laughs> <laughs> with actors Dennis Hopper, <laughs> <laughs> Debbie Mazer. <laughs> Woody, I, I don't, I don't know if I fully understand. I know, I, I, I get that you're making fun of me, but I don't understand exactly how. Is it? What are you saying that I'm too robotic when I read these things? No, no, no it just, just, it blew up last week. Have you ever gone on YouTube to to look something up and you end up with one of those videos where it's literally just like some person did a text to speech thing to a background? Yes, 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 I have. Yeah, we're, we're likening your, your info dumps to, to something similar. Some, sometimes you nerd out on IMDb and just read from top to bottom, and we're just taking the piss. <laughs> I am absolutely reading from top to bottom on what I just Googled it, man. I mean, sorry, Jimmy Googled it and handed me the phone, and I was like, you know, this is good. All right, all right, I'm down with that. Um, I, that also makes me think of, and I, I forgot to mention this last week, like in the... Um, uh, Whatever episode, Jesus, I don't even remember what episode that was. We were talking about the Degenitron from Grand Theft Auto. The real, the real nugget, my favorite, favorite fake commercial from Grand Theft Auto is for that stupid musical called In the Future There Will Be Robots. <laughs> okay, I don't, I don't remember that one. Oh, God. I knew Ben would remember it. We'll have to. Well, well, that you you saying that the me reading that in like a text to speech kind of auto tuned voice made me think of that. So anyway, we'll have to throw that into the show notes or something for the folks at home as a little side nuggy. Anyway, anyway, um, I really enjoyed watching these and talking about them, and I can't wait to get into again talking about seasons three and four. So, um, who is it, Mike S. that suggested this? Yes chat is that right mike s thank you for recommending it i uh really enjoyed this whole journey bada bing huh seasons three and four we gotta crunch those and now it comes time for what has become one of my favorite parts of the show where i ask algorithm where are we flying to next week so next week we got a bit of an interesting one we're doing a world war ii drama that's from germany's perspective it's been called the german band of brothers it's called uh, generation war it's super interesting. It's a three-parter, I believe, on Amazon Prime. I'm pretty sure it's on Amazon Prime, so if anyone wants to check it out, um, is a really good chance that most people haven't heard of it. I just stumbled across it on a Reddit thread or something. Being a huge fan of Band of Brothers, I was intrigued by the German perspective. So um, it's nowhere near as good in terms of money spent, but it's quite interesting just in terms of subject. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say about it. Well, there you go, folks. So check that out and join us for uh, next week when we talk about that uh, very interesting documentary, film, whatever, series. Yeah. Miniseries. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And uh, we'll see you on another time. See ya. Good day. And that's going to wrap up this week's episode, folks. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we're going to be talking about the German production miniseries Generation War. So definitely stay tuned for that. That's going to be an interesting one. You can find the show notes for today's episode in your podcast app O choice or our website, ebd.fm forward slash episodes forward slash 43. You can shoot us questions using the Twitter hashtag AskEBD. You can find me, Mulverine, on Twitter at M-O-H-L-V-E-R-I-N-E. Chad is at Chad Normal on Twitter, and Ben is at Jarhego on Twitter. That's J-A-R-H-E-E-G-O. 
I'd like to take a second and thank everybody so much for tuning into the show. It means the world to the three of us. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a couple of great ways you can do that. First, by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast nuggets. You can also tell someone to check out the show. Word of mouth is incredibly powerful and incredibly effective. Thanks so much for tuning in, folks, and we'll see you next time.